I was given the diary. We've certainly got some great material. My name is James, and my dad has kept a diary each day since 1987. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Half Life of Brian podcast, live-ish from the lockdown, April Fool's 2020. I'm here with my co-host and one half of my creators, Brian <laughs> Karlberg. How are you doing? I'm alright, thank you son. We're keeping our uh, social distancing as we do this, six feet apart. Yep, it's a big microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Last week we looked at 1987 the start of the diaries and the start of this whole saga. Now we've got the difficult second album. Yes, yes. We've got 1988. Yes. A big year in of itself. Sequels sometimes are better. The Godfather, there's one for you. Godfather 2, excellent. Terminator better 2. First, yes, both better than the first ones. And this time I'm armed with the uh, the bigger, chunkier version of the diaries as well. Meager rations last time because the 87 diary was a very slim thing. So hopefully we've got a bit more material. We've put some snapshots up on Twitter already and, and social media um, just to show what they look like. They do, they are new and improved. This diary is brought to you by, as, as per, by 3M. Big shout outs here as sponsors of the 1988 Olympics and Winter Olympics yes. in Seoul and Calgary, which were famous for, uh, for many reasons that we'll elaborate on in mm -hmm. today's podcast. Quick recap for anyone who hasn't uh, checked out the, the, the podcast before or, or seen any of the, the stuff that we've put out there. Why are we doing this? Why are you here today? Sitting here, six feet apart, on April Fool's Day, talking to me about your diaries. Well, we just want to bring to life, uh, with a fresh perspective, all the adventures and mundane things that we did way back then in the uh, late 80s. Hopefully, we'll... Uh, unearth a few interesting material. Right, so it, it is April Fool's Day, and one thing that we have put out there already as a little teaser into the diary um, is the fact that a trick was played on you on this day yeah. in 1988. Yeah, my sister, our Sheila, she uh, phoned up uh, feigning concern because we were, we were going to, on holiday to the Costa del Sol in June, Janet, uh, myself and her. And you, of course, a little uh, one-year-old at this stage, and uh, we'd got a holiday booked, and we were looking forward to it. And she, she rang up and said she could, she couldn't go. <laughs> That's why I'd be worried to death. <laughs> That's some pretty brutal trolling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just about to go into work on the afternoon shift as well. <laughs> <laughs> and she put me out of my misery and, and said it was April Fool, so we'll forgive her. <laughs> There were some pretty yeah, yeah. good ones this year. I was, I was doing a bit of research around it once I'd, I'd seen the, the entry. One such uh, hoax, there was a couple of hoaxes that were done in 1988. And one big one that we've posted is that uh, Maradona, Diego Maradona, who would have been at his, his pomp at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, was set to join the, the USSR as, as, as part of their, their international football team. That... You know, in hindsight, seems a pretty obvious. The, the guys from Argentina, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There wasn't a lot of uh, uh, crossover at, at that stage into the Soviet Union from elsewhere in the uh, football world. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, famous one was that there was going to be a BMW badge wash system, a oh. system that <laughs> specifically had a little wiper that cleaned your BMW badge on the front of your car so aside from your windscreen wipers you had its own set of wipers and one for the badge as well one for the badge mm. um underwhelming privatizing the army <laughs> oh right yeah that was that was one yeah. featured in the uh, the daily telegraph and there's a thing yeah. called the cumbrian boggart which was the sighting of a, a fictional creature yeah. on the moors in uh, in in cumbria in the lake district uh, but yeah, the Maradona one actually had quite a, a, a bit of wide play and, and was, um, I guess, some people took it seriously. Yeah. Bizarrely. T uh, April Fool's Day has been quite good today. I saw earlier there was a Wallace and Gromit Netflix series oh, very good. Uh, that was allegedly <laughs> starring Mark Strong and Tom Hardy. So I, I, yeah, I would, I'd pay my sub money yeah. to, to see that. That'd be funny. That'd be good. They ought to do it. <laughs> yeah. So Netflix, if you're listening, you know, the Half-Life of Brian podcast <laughs> has said, make it so. 1987 is done, 
that's in the can. Still there for you to listen to, so check it out if you haven't done so already. We're looking at 1988, and this is a big year locally for us as a family and globally as well. So what was going on with us during this time, our clan? Well, we were still living uh, two-bedroom semi at the bottom of uh, Arden Street. Early on in, uh, in the diary, we see that uh, it snowed. We had a, we had a, quite a, a lot of snowfall. You got your first glimpse of snow as we uh, looked out in February. It was uh, quite heavy snowfall. And I remember having to dig a lot of people out of the, uh, the snow in the, the bottom of the uh, cul-de-sac and help them to get the cars up the street because they were slipping and sliding everywhere. So this is in, yeah. in January, February time. Yeah, right? yeah. So my first yeah. sighting of, of snow. Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. Of course, we, we, don't, we don't seem to see much of it these days, but uh, then it was still quite a regular thing. You still got uh, quite heavy snowfalls in the, in the winter. And uh, I remember going to work uh, then in the, uh, the 3M factory and you'd have three foot long icicles hanging off every gable end and every pipe all the way around the, the maker area of the factory. It was a, an annual event, uh, putting you know lots of antifreeze in all the outside tanks and everything there, but uh, it's something I don't think they have to do anymore. It's uh, there's definitely something to this uh, global warming, I think. You just don't see things like that anymore. So a little yeah. bit a little bit of anecdotal evidence yeah. for global warming there, oh, courtesy yes. of, of, of 3M definitely. in, uh, in yeah. 1988. Yeah. Um, great, uh, and a big year for our family, of course. Uh, big year for the world. You've got the Olympics going on. Yeah. You've got um, lots of political events. Yeah. Margaret Thatcher's still Prime Minister. Yes, she's uh, the longest serving uh, Prime Minister at this stage and uh, I've, got, uh, I've got in my diary the, uh, the seamen gone on strike and uh, I'm it connected. the nurses have gone on strike as well. The sailors, that is. Yeah, 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 the sailors, all right, not the seamen, the sailors. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the nurses, uh, because of cuts to the NHS, so uh, things don't seem to change too much. <laughs> and uh, of course, the jump to the the big event of that year is, uh, of course, your brother was born, which is the uh, the biggest uh, event of all. Uh, our Alan came on the scene, but that wasn't until later in the year, of course, December the fourth. So spoilers for December. Yeah. So which also happens to be uh, your mum and I's wedding anniversary as well. So that's a a, a nice coincidence. So how long have you yeah. been married by the time that? I had rolled round and, and then two years later, Alan. Well, we married in 81, so uh, you were born in 86, so five years for you and uh, seven years for, for Alan. It was our seventh wedding, wedding anniversary uh, when Alan was born. Wow, what a, what a gift. Yeah, you, you, you tell some people your wedding anniversary is the day that uh, the child was born, they think uh, it was a bit of a shotgun wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not true. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, a huge, yeah. huge year. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. Alan, Alan yeah. is... In his thirties now, yes, yes, and children yeah. of his own, yes, yes. So um, he, he was uh, he was the, the big addition that that year. But uh, as as usual, you have uh, people leaving the stage as well. Russell Harty, the chat show host, uh, Jimmy Edwards, uh, or Wacko, as he's he won't be known by uh, modern listeners, but uh, people of my age will remember Wacko, Jimmy Edwards, Barbara Woodhouse, the uh, the, the dog trainer. She's famous for uh, being a little. Uh, tell any dog uh, what to do and it would obey. She'd uh, have a call of uh, sit and walkies and all that, you know. It was just very, very famous she was. Could have done that with uh, Ben by the sounds of things. Yes, could have, could have done with her around Ben, definitely. Engineering side, we had Enzo Ferrari, no less. The uh, the old man ran the car manufacturers and uh, Formula One teams. And, uh, his family was named for, I would imagine. Yeah, oh yes, yes, yeah. He died at ripe old age of ninety. Uh, alongside him was uh, Isaac Isagonis, who passed away. Who was the the iconic British Mini was invented by him. Who who was a Greek, of course, isn't it? which is uh, interesting. But it's an iconic British mark, the Mini. Mini Cooper. Yeah, Mini Cooper. Yeah, yeah. So very. Isaac Isagonis. Yeah, and uh, while we're staying on the. Uh, engineering uh, side of things you've got uh, uh, the less fortunately uh, named yes Felix Wankel uh, designer of the rotary engine carried his name it was a you know a variation on the uh, internal combustion engine rather than being a, 
a reciprocating engine. It was more of a rotary uh, sort of hydrovane type of turbiney type uh, type affair. Yeah, yeah. Felix Wankel. Felix Wankel. And his rotary engine. Nothing to do with uh, ankles and no. self abuse. <laughs> <laughs> We had a, a neighbour of your grandma and granddad's, uh, uh, an old fella called George Perkins. Fella, little, little, little old fella with a little moustache. He'd lived there for, for years and he passed away. Left his, uh, his little poodle, he had a little poodle called Mitzi. And because uh, he was on his own, there was nobody to, uh, to take it on. And uh, your old great, great maiden aunt, Mary, who was on her own now, because we, if you re recall in the, the last uh, podcast, uh, her sister Auntie Sally passed away sadly. She was a, a regular visitor to us down in uh, Abbaston, then visiting your, your grandma. And likewise, grandma and granddad would go up there to uh, South Shields, to Cleveland, to visit her. She took a liking to uh, George's... Uh, dog who didn't have an owner anymore, little Mitzi, the miniature poodle, and uh, so much so that she, she kept it and took it back up to South Shields with her, which was a, a happy ending for the dog. So George had a legacy in the North East? Oh yes, definitely. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> of course I had my me, uh, me best pal was uh, my little dog at the time, Ben. He didn't take too kindly to being left on his own uh, when he went to work and, and your mum was looking after children and because uh, we were we were a problem at this point weren't yeah we? he was a bit of a handful ben was was becoming he was barking incessantly he'd attack anything that came through the door you kept i had a an evening paper delivered we used to have the evening tribune uh it was in the the, the days of the uh the paper then you'd have a, a morning paper and an evening paper so people don't bother with papers at all now like but ben would attack if i didn't get there first Ben would get there first and tear it to shreds. I wouldn't have a chance of reading it. You'd, you'd be trying to piece it together to try and make sense of it, but uh, more often than not, he'd rip it to shreds and think it was a great game if you, you wanted to tug it out of his mouth and it would just get ripped apart even more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ben the dog. <laughs> of course, oh, this is such a cliche, it was all feels. <laughs> <laughs> all fields up Sheepy Road then. On the old farm, there's an old farmer Gisborne who owned the land. Anyway, in 1988, a site office sprang up on the uh, on the farmland in the field next to your grandma and granddad, and uh, it was uh, it belonged to Crest Crest Homes, and it was the start of what was going to be a, a, a big sprawling private housing estate which they started to put the foundations in that year. It all, it all started then, in, uh, early in 1988. And uh, the old farmer, I remember, who, uh, old farmer Gisborne, he was a regular visitor to your grandma and granddad's, uh, just prior to that. He's, he was an old, old retired fella, and uh, often when I'd go in there, he'd be sitting in the, uh, in the kitchen or in the lounge with a cup of tea. He was good friends with your grandma and granddad, so that was uh, immediately before the big estate that we, we now know as, uh, I think, Reppington Avenue and all the uh, the offshoot roads from there, you know, on, on both sides of the road now. But uh, I suppose it was part of the, the sort of that latest type of brand of 80s, 90s housing estate that came... Yeah. After the, the there was a big after the post war there was a big house building boom, wasn't there? Oh yeah, yeah. There was that was part of the big boom. That was uh, of course because uh, house prices just took off uh, around about that period. You know, people were uh, were buying uh, houses and and then quickly moving on and getting a, a bigger one or a, another one. You know, but uh, they were quite quite cheap compared to today's prices. Also in February. In in Aberston, uh, big news at the time was the Regal Cinema, which played a big part in uh, last year's uh, or last week's podcast. It was demolished, demolished on the twelfth of February. They uh, started to knock it down and uh, soon flattened it. That too became a building plot for for flats, and uh, it's the Regal Court now. But I remember them knocking it down. I remember actually going in and, and video with me video camera and. Uh, Going into the uh, 
the front of the the cinema and uh, videoing the uh, the box office and the the entrance to the stores and what have you. And, uh, and this is pre-multiplex. This is before. Oh yeah, it was very old-fashioned. I mean, it, it had a, what they called it, a circle. It was just a, a a few raised seats at the back, a little bit higher than the others. You know, it wasn't a circle as such on a different floor. So it was a very small cinema, but uh, yeah, it was it was it was the end of an era. That was the Regal Cinema in Addison demolished in February. I'd like to clarify at this point, my interruption of Star Trek had nothing to do with the, with the downfall or the demolition oh, no. of this building. Um, I'm sure it was separate economic forces that, that set that in, in place. Oh yes, definitely. Just oh, as a disclaimer there. Just a coincidence that it was very close together. <laughs> <laughs> so that year we had the retirement of uh, Dr. Farn, much loved uh, family doctor who was a great help to your grandma Mary when she was the matron of uh, Bracebridge Court and uh, also very very influential in getting the treatment for your granddad Charlie when he was having his heart trouble in his, his early 60s saved his life really and uh, Dr Farn was a real good uh, good friend and, and doctor to the, the family and he retired in uh, 88. We're talking at a time now where they're actually taking or eight, talking about taking doctors and nurses out of retirement to come and help with the service now. Yeah. So it must have been, you know, commun the community doctors back then and now, are, mm -hmm. you, you said they pretty much helped save Grandad's life. Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's long dead himself now, uh, Dr. Farn is, but uh, we've seen off another doctor since then. We've had uh, Dr. Goodings being our, our family doctor for over 30 years since then. So, uh, and he's retired now. So, yeah, the generations move on, don't they? <laughs> And um, no, it says pub licensing laws change, you've written down there. The old licensing laws as we knew them, when, uh, when I first used to go in the pub and when you, your granddad used to go in, they'd, they'd uh, shout last orders and they'd, they'd have this uh, ritual of putting the towels on just uh, 10 minutes before the pub closed at, at dinner time or in the evenings. And it'd be about 2 o'clock in the afternoon uh, or at night, half 10. Putting the towels on what? Putting the towels on the towel. They get the wet towel, the towel off the bar, and they put it over the uh, over the pumps. The taps, over, yeah. Over the taps, and you knew that was it. You, you know, you, the, there was no more beer to be had. That'd be half ten, closing time, in the, at night. You know, and they probably wouldn't have. They'd open at seven in the evening, say, till half ten in the evening, perhaps eleven o'clock on Fridays, and that was it. That was quite rigid licensing laws, and. Uh, they were scrapped in 1988, so the pubs theoretically could, could open all day. So uh, everyone thought, well, that's it, we're going to turn into a, a nation of alcoholics. <laughs> but uh, I, don't, I don't know, I'll leave you to be the judge of whether we did or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a big... Um, uh, what, what happened then? I mean, nightclubs obviously existed at this point and things like that. Yeah, they it? had special licences to stay open longer, but, uh, but it, it affected your, your pubs, your, your normal pubs could then extend and stay up until midnight and things like that you know of course and, this is a, and, and open it all day in the afternoons if they wanted which they couldn't do before right yeah okay so yes yeah, and, and it's a big um big step big change big, big step big change it's a yeah. big big steps and changes in in music as well linked to that sort of thing i was looking just now at um the sorts of things that are in the charts as well as the sort mm -hmm. of things that were popular at the time the there was a big rise towards house music which is a, a huge preserve of the the early nineties mainly, that sort of yeah. rave culture. Yeah. Maybe that sort of thing's coincided, the, yeah. the sort of changes attitudes towards yeah. um alcohol licensing and then you've got this kind of party vibes coming through in the in the nineties oh, um, and excesses of that sort of thing. Things like Bomb the Bass, big house act uh, like that coming through. The raves and things like that, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. And then uh Kylie Minogue, it was a big year for Kylie Minogue. All right. Yeah. Just to go on the flip side, the the girl next door in the charts off the back of the show Neighbours. Yes. Uh, being shown. Her and Jason Donovan were in, in Neighbours, weren't they? Be yeah. So the Aussie Aussie soaps making their way over, and yeah, um, yeah Kylie Minogue huge. It's also a big year for film. Uh, oh. Die Hard was was the, the the big action blockbuster out. Oh yeah. During this year, yeah. and and famously set at Christmas. Oh right. Did you know that, Dad? I didn't know that. No, I just know they've made millions, but well, not millions. They've made. Lots and lots of diehards. I think I've probably seen them all by now. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Bruce Willis's disappearing hair. Yeah. And uh, an energy. Yeah. Uh, throughout them. <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, yippee ki to you, Bruce. To watch films, we'd, uh, we'd have to go to the video library because we'd lost the Regal. We all had video players then, video tape players. And there was uh, three formats all vying for position at the time. You'd got the VHS, which was to go on to be the dominant one. You'd got uh, Betamax, which uh, alas, I invested in. I've still got the Betamax player upstairs in mothballs in the loft now. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. And there was the Video 2000, was the uh, the poor relation of the three, really. It was very good, very good system, actually, but it just never caught on to the rental market, which that's what they needed to corner. They needed to corner the, uh, the, the rental market to be able to make money and to, for people to buy the actual uh, cassettes, you know. Is that what? So what does VHS stand for? Is that... Um, oh, I wish you hadn't asked me that. <laughs> we'll find out. Video, uh, video or something. Video home imagine. system. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah, but um, yeah, uh, I guess um, yeah. what was it? What video two thousand? Yes. Yeah. What Yeah, that was the one format. I didn't. I was lagging behind the other two really. What a forward yeah. thinking. Yeah, it was good. Nickname. Really, it was a good. It was a good uh, cassette, and the and of course the Betamax one was as well. And uh, the VHS was probably the, the most cumbersome of the three, I think, really. But it, it as I say, it cornered the, the the home video and, and rental market, and that was that, that was the clincher. And uh, our local uh, video library was uh, there was one or two, but the, the best one in Atherston was um, Foster's. Jim Foster was a, a local uh, shop owner who uh, sold electrical goods, all sorts of electrical goods, you know, TVs, radios. Uh, white goods, kettles, uh, you, you know, you, kitchen, anything you wanted, electrical, he, he sold in his shop. Really nice, helpful, genial sort of guy he was. Old fashioned shopkeeper, shop owner. You had to go upstairs, and upstairs he had all these racks of uh, videos, there were, and there was three lots. There was the, the V2000 ones, there was the Betamax ones, and the VHS ones. So you went to your section of the library that uh, your machine would play, you know. Which was a ludicrous situation, really, having three different formats all vying for the same shop space. And uh, yeah, I remember it well. Used to go up and you know, hire videos. All that year, we hired uh, release on, on video. Obviously, the lag behind the cinemas, you know, because the cinema was still there. And these were precursor to, to things like Blockbuster Video, I gather, which became the mainstream. Oh, yes, yes, yes. These, these were the, the, the small small operators really before they came along and uh, cornered the market but yeah three different formats would you believe and uh, and, and we had the betamax version <laughs> yeah and pre pre dvd yeah. of course yes pre oh, which the, became the dominant yeah, format yeah. for it was a still time. it was still you were still in the analog world weren't you then we hadn't got digital things so we hadn't got the you know the, the, the telephones you've got now there's no mobile phones or anything like that you know people were still using their landlines or going to red telephone boxes to make calls. This is a, like another world, really, when you think about it. It's funny because I, I use I use DVDs as coasters now. Yeah. And then up the road at the telephone box, you've got a defibrillator in the, yeah, yeah, in the telephone yeah, box. Yeah, yeah. A lot of villages as well are using like mini libraries. They're turning yes. the, the phone boxes, old red phone boxes, into yeah. book swaps. So you know, yeah. I guess it's a yeah. sign of a changing era. You, you were able to toddle about a bit and so we'd go um, before obviously before we had Alan in December we'd uh, we were quite mobile uh, popping here there for days out and holidays and what have you we uh, we had a nice day in London early on in February where we uh, out there London yeah where we, uh, we saw the Chinese New Year in and uh, I remember being in uh, in Soho and they got the the, uh, the the dragons costumes you know and the firecrackers these the loudest noises I've ever heard in my life absolutely deafening the uh, the firecrackers to bring in the new year that was uh, I, I bet even you remember that young as you were I do remember yeah. explosions yeah. that was that was something that did stick with me at, <laughs> terrifying <at that> point. <laughs> and uh, we also went to speaker's corner on and a dragon trip. it was a dragon as well yeah so. a dragon yeah it was it was really really good. And we went to Speaker's Corner on that trip as well, and uh, that was fascinating. Speaker's Corner to see all the people in the afternoon. Uh, you have to go in the afternoon, Speaker's Corner. It's no good going in the morning. On a Sunday. On a Sunday, yeah. And uh, all sorts of people 
get standing up on the soapboxes, just uh, spouting off how they think the world should be, and uh, you get a, a fair old mix of crackpots and, and loons among the uh, the serious ones. There was a I remember some religious people. There was a there was an old uh, priest who used to be there every Sunday. Quite a quite a well known fella he was, and he uh, he, he spoke a lot of intelligent uh, sense. But uh, then you'd have the just the the others who'd got their pet grudges who were. I remember one fellow was up and he was yelling about uh, going to America and taking ill. I don't know whether it, it, it happened to him, but he was he was shouting, "Don't go to America! If you're ill, the doctors will mag you." With his <laughs> co Cockney accent, which I'm not very good at. <laughs> the doctors will mag you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember going with you, I think it must have been 10 years ten yeah. years or so later. Yeah. I mean, it would be very impressionable, I was about 10 at the time, yeah. and there being some real controversial topics like eugenics and things like yeah, that being spouted. Yeah. Um, literally, yeah, yeah. A, a white guy and, a, and a, a black guy arguing with each other about who was superior oh, yes, um, at yes. the time. And I was, yeah, I was, yeah. that really struck me. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realise I'd yeah. been here this year. Yes, oh uh, yeah, we went then, yeah. yeah. It was, I think it was a bit less... A, a bit more light-hearted this visit in in '88. I think it got it, it got an edge to it after that. If you went in in later years, it became you'd get the uh, the the jihadists and people like that uh, standing up who wouldn't tolerate any dissent or anything like that, and and it became a bit uncomfortable, you know. Less of a debate. Le yeah, less of a debate. It was it was a bit more of a bit more of a laugh when we went in '88. You know, I mean, I remember I've never laughed so much in my life. I thought it was hilarious. Some of it, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it got a bit, bit, a bit nasty and serious uh, as the years went on after that. Your grandma and uh, granddad Charlie had a lot of trips up north and back, looking after uh, old Auntie Mary, who was now on her own. Great, my great Auntie Mary. They also had real good friends, uh, Roy and Doreen Young. They used to live in London, uh, Roy and Doreen, and uh, Roy, Roy was actually uh, Dad's best man at their wedding. And uh, I think they've been in the air force together. So they were, during the war. Yes, yeah, they were real, real good friends. They lived in uh, in Ealing in London, uh, but they were from the northeast. Like uh, grandma and uh, granddad, they'd, uh, they'd moved south from the northeast looking for work. You know, and they uh, they'd lived in uh, uh, West London in Ealing and uh, had their, their children there and brought them up. Very sought after area these days. Oh yeah, and they, uh, they actually, when they retired, they, uh, they sold this house in Ealing and, uh, and bought a, a house in, uh, in Bridlington in Yorkshire. So they made a, a pretty penny on that move, I, I would imagine. But they were a lovely, lovely couple and uh, they, they were very familiar visitors at that time of day in 1988. And likewise, uh, grandma and granddad would go and visit them as well. So, uh, yeah, and uh, your, your grandma Mary also had an invite at that time in 1988 to uh, a nurse's reunion. She'd been a, a state registered nurse all her life and uh, worked in the, the theatres and the wards and the various hospitals, but the Ingham Infirmary in South Shields was where she uh, did a lot of her work and where she trained. Cut and her nursing teeth. Cut her nursing teeth, yes, yeah. And uh, she had this invite and in May she uh, she went up to the Sea Hotel on the South Shields seafront where, where they had their wedding reception as well. And uh, the Ingham nurses were, were all reuniting in 1988 who'd been working together through the 50s and the 60s, you know. So a lot of them were, were pensioners and, and all, you know. And uh, she had a really good time, I remember. She uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. Shout out to all your nurses out there. Yeah, the yes, doctors. yes. Yeah, yeah, the Ingham nurses, the Ingham infirmary. remember going there a lot when I was a, a little lad. I remember having scrapes and bumps and being dragged into casualty <laughs> to be stitched up. <laughs> so Grandma was a nurse yeah. for a long time. Yeah. And it was, it was a big yeah. year for her. She also met somebody uh, this year, didn't she? She met... Uh, Yes. Oh, yeah. She in, in uh, that was later on in the year in the diary. I've got it there uh, in November. She actually met uh, the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles, and shook shook his hand. She wished him a happy birthday, and uh, he replied, "Thank you very much to her." So that that made her day. That did. <laughs> and get well soon, Charlie. If you're, if yes. you're listening. Oh uh, yes. Yeah, we understand you're feeling a bit rough. 
Yeah, he's had the uh, had the virus, hasn't he? Happy birthday from my grandma. That's gonna yeah, speak yeah. volumes. Oh, definitely, yeah. Made his day. We're talking about old George Perkins, who, who we lost. But of course, Jackie Milburn passed away, age sixty-four, in nineteen eighty-eight. The uh, Geordie legend, Newcastle United uh, leading goal scorer until Alan Shearer surpassed it. Ashington-born Jackie Milburn to do half a shift down the pit. Yeah, he was a miner, wasn't he? Yeah, they'd, Before they'd, the... they'd come up and bang a goal in for Newcastle. <laughs> the, the footballers have changed since them days, I think. I can't they? imagine that would have done your fitness any good. No, I wouldn't have thought so. And, well, look, he didn't... Uh, he died at, he, at the age I am now, actually. Was he relatively he? young then? Yeah, right? relatively young, yeah. yeah. We also, uh, Roy Orbison, the big O, he uh, shuffled off his mortal coil as well. Mercy. Yeah. Pretty oh, Woman, yeah, obviously with his big, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, big track. Oh, it was, yeah. Well, well he had a, a huge catalogue of uh, songs, did uh, Roy Orbison, yeah. The first one to go over in, uh, in 1988 was uh, a, a youngster, one of the Gibb brothers, Andy Gibb, the, the Bee Gees' uh, youngest brother, who didn't really play with the Bee Gees, but he had a, a bit of a solo career. So he wasn't ABG? No, not really, no, no. He uh, he was only 30. Yeah, he, he went in March. Early in uh, in 88 as well, uh, there was a, a local character as well, uh, Jim Beale. Now, Jim Beale was the uh, head security man at uh, 3M, at the 3M plant. And uh, that was, in those days, 3M employed their own security men. It's, it's all contractors uh, now, it has been for, for many years. But then they had their, their own uh, their own crew of uh, security men. All had their own 3M uniforms, and uh, they were all old fellas. They'd all got their different uh, ailments and what have you. I don't know what they'd ever do if there'd, there'd been a, a break in or anything, because they were proper old fellas. They were. <laughs> they all got different uh, limps and funny walks. <laughs> <laughs> but Jim was the was a genial old. Uh, sergeant if you like who was in charge of them all and uh, I, I remember he used to always have a packet of boiled sweets on him and uh, whenever you went to the gatehouse whether you were clocking in clocking out or just inquiring for anything this hand would come out through the uh, through the glass window and plop uh, a butterscotch on the counter giving them away to everybody who came and went he was known for his sweets and his kindness and uh, he just truly really dropped dead at work on the job a committed yeah, yeah employee he, then yeah oh yeah jim beale he was a graham legend and if, if not a formidable security man he was the bane yes. of local dentists everywhere yes he's <laughs> put a scotch sweet <laughs> bless him the carry on franchise took a mortal blow in 1988, the uh, when we were talking about films earlier on. They, they were never going to make another carry-on film to match the ones that had come before, because... This not, is a nice contrast to Die Hard. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> not only did we lose Kenneth Williams of uh, carry-on fame, but a double whammy, Charles Hawtrey went as well. A pair of them, absolutely stars of the carry-on films. In the world, a yeah. lot less camp. A lot less camp, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Charles, Charles Horsey is probably most famous for being an album cover, isn't he? To young people, probably, yeah. Yeah, he's <laughs> on the front of one of Smith's albums, I think. Or is it Morrissey's albums? <laughs> I, think, I think it's the Smith's, yeah. 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 But yeah, it's uh, a very, very incongruous uh, cover. Uh, bespectacled... Charles Hawtrey, yeah. But Kenneth Williams, what a fantastic comic presence. and you oh, know, very, yeah. It's a very sad life he, he led. Um, oh, did he? I'm, yeah, I'm led yeah, to believe yeah, because... He was, yeah, he was yeah. quite well. He was only sixty-one when he died. He's quite obviously gay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. I think he had very, very hard time of it with mm. through through mental mm. health, through coming to terms with um, the attitudes towards that sort of thing at the yes, time. Yes, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very funny. Not just the carry-ons, but I remember growing up with uh, listen to right way before your time, and most people who were listening to this time, the Round the Horn was a hilarious uh, dinner-time radio uh, comedy on Sundays and uh, he's one of the stars of that with his uh, the characters that he used to used to bring onto it really really funny rambling Sid Rumpo that was one of them I think he used to have this contorted voice that only he could do it was really really funny so are we going to talk about Kenneth Williams without doing the catchphrases 
Oh, matron. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. We'll, we'll, yes, we will, yes. We can't go that nasal. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, infamy, yeah. infamy was the, the key. Oh, they've all got it, infamy, yeah, of course. The yeah, key Shakespeare yeah, adaptation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the sporting front, Mike Tyson was in his uh, prime. Then he'd be, he was knocking everybody out. And uh, Any notable scalps? It just flattened the great Larry Holmes. I think Larry Holmes had beaten Muhammad Ali, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He was a real, real hard, last of the real great boxers at the time, Larry Holmes, I think. But I get, I, he, he might have been in his late 30s when uh, Mike Tyson beat him. But uh, he beat him anyway. And he'd, uh, same as he beat Spinks and Bone Crusher Smith just before. You beat someone called Bone Crusher, that's got to be, that's got to count for something, right? Yes, yes. We had, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and uh, that was famous. We'd, we weren't setting the world on fire, I don't think, uh, sport-wise then, because it came before the uh, the lottery funding and, and what have you. The golden where, generation of where, Team GB. Yeah, we all. So then days we didn't have such such good good ones, I don't think, and uh, it was famous for Eddie the Eagle Edwards. Eddie Edwards. Yeah, it was famous for being not very good. <laughs> Although I defy anybody who's listening to this to, to go off one of those uh, those ski jumps, you know I, I wouldn't. I've seen them. I've been been near a, a couple of them, and uh, they're not for the uh, for the faint-hearted. Yeah, I yeah. mean you, that, that's one thing, Eddie Edwards. Yeah. What I perceive he, he lacked in technical ability, the heart and the bravery and the the tenacity. There was, a, I mean, there was a there was a. He was made famous, more famous by a film recently, wasn't he? Starring Taron Egerton. Yes, and, I saw um, that. Yes, yes. Hugh Jackman, in which he was yeah. part of that. And that was part of the, the Calgary Winter Olympics. And he, he came back a hero. Yeah, no medals, but a hero. Yeah. <laughs> I remember him uh, coming to the uh, to Tamworth, to the local uh, snow dome when it, when it opened and, uh, and helping to cut the ribbon and stuff like that. And that. So he, be, he, was a, he became a celeb. Same with sport. We, uh, I went to see, um, see Newcastle uh, play at Wimbledon early that year. Uh, at Plough Lane, the old Wimbledon ground. And... What a team of animals they were! Absolutely horrendous. That was the infamous game where uh, there's a iconic photograph with Vinnie Jones reaching backwards and squeezing uh, Paul Gascoigne's uh, nether regions. <laughs> that, that was the, I was at that match, and it was it was horrendous. They just assaulted the Newcastle players all through the game. I can remember little Kenny Wharton, who played for Newcastle at the time coming into a sliding tackle, because it was a bit of a quagmire the pitch was as well. I was standing right up against the pitch behind a barrier, and they slid into the corner, near the corner flag, ended up in a, in a heap. And as they stood up, John Fashion, he hocked back the most horrible phlegm spit, and spit straight into Kenny Wharton's face, right right in front of my eyes. It was dripping off his nose, little, little Kenny Wharton. Oh, it was horrendous. Absolute animals they were. People will have this with their breakfast, Dad, don't they? Oh, we? dear me. And that John Fasher knew he used to talk to the cameras as if butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Oh, dear. Of course, these, these people... Absolute animal on the football pitch. <laughs> these these players played for yeah. the now defunct Wimbledon. Yeah. That don't exist as a, as no, a, no. a team anymore. No, Certainly no. in the Premier League. They, uh, they, they, ooh, they were... Tell, I'll, I'll never forget that game. I've never seen... the ref, What the referee was doing, he, he could have sent the whole team off. I don't think he booked any of them. And then, but, uh, anyway, that team went on that year. <laughs> for all I'm uh, criticising them, they went on and won the FA Cup. Beat Liverpool at Wembley that year, uh, one nil. Uh, Laurie Sanchez in, uh, with, a, with a winning goal, unbelievable. And is it, is it Joe Kinnear yeah. in charge at the time, or was that different? He might have been. I can't remember now. But uh, dear man, they were they were horrific. Of course, jo uh, John John Fashionu is is more famous yeah. these days for for gladiators, having been yes. a presenter of yes. gladiators, oh, and yeah, yeah. Hollywood's Vinnie Jones. Yeah, of course, yes, yes, yes. Everyone, everyone loves them, don't they? But yeah, maybe they were vicious footballers. Yeah, and Paul Gascoigne is he's probably yeah, uh, still nursing that that grab now. Yes. yes. <laughs> what a great player he was then. I mean, he was ours then. He was a Newcastle player then. And, Oh, you, you knew, even though he was just young, you, knew, you thought, this this fellow's destined for great things. In fact, I remember watching uh, a programme on the telly where the Newcastle 
youths, the young players were training. And uh, Jackie Milburn, who, who, before he died, Jackie Milburn was being interviewed by, uh, I think it was Luke North, and they got the microphone and he was on about this kid. He says, this kid, he says, he says, wait till you see him. He says, you, you think I'm exaggerating? He says, but I'm not. He says, he's the best. He's the best player I've ever seen. Jackie Milburn was singing his praises, you know, and uh, very poignant that because Jackie, you know, would die shortly after that. And Gaza went on to, to become a great player, of course. It's interesting, the story, sticking with sport, um, I also looked at looking at the Olympics itself. I've got uh, here that, and there was a, a terrorist attack that failed to derail the 1988 Seoul Olympics. My understanding was with the Seoul, there was a, a co-bid to host the Olympics between North Korea and South Korea, which right. failed. As a result, it tried to disrupt them with a bomb. So North Korean agent Kim Hyun Hee, responsible for the Korean air flight bombing in 1987. November the 29th, 1987, two North Korean spies boarded a South Korean plane in Baghdad. The pair had used fake names and forged passports to pose as Japanese tourists. Japanese tourists in Baghdad in 1988. That's a story on its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So even though yeah. the bombing occurred nearly a year before the Olympics, Sergei Radchenko, a professor of international relations at Cardiff University, says he has no doubt the attack was an effort to sabotage the Olympic Games. Interestingly, this, this year, the diaries are quite interesting when it talks about going back to Alan. When Alan was... Before he was born, the build-up into December, mm. of course, there was there was the big was she wasn't she yes, question yes, of yeah. pregnancy at the time with yeah. my mother. Well, your mum your mum was starting to get a bit of morning sickness, and uh, in April she did a test and it came back positive. So we knew in early on in April that uh, Alan was on his way, <laughs> and. Uh, they have these quirky. Uh, I'm going to insert a sound things. effect in there somewhere. Yeah, these, uh, <laughs> uh, women can't stand certain things, and uh, with your with your mum during that uh, pregnancy, it was uh, the smell of uh, brown bread being toasted, which was a shame because I I loved that for my breakfast, and I remember we used to have to get an extension lead, plug it into the kitchen, and wind it out into the back garden, and put the toaster on a chair out in the back garden and I just have to toast my bread out in the back garden because she couldn't stand the smell of it as you do <laughs> make her throw up <laughs> to me that seemed normal growing up yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time it coincided with something that was quite interesting going on as well you had a, a hijacking in Kuwait yeah there was a, a jumbo jet hijacked in Kuwait at the, around about that time and uh, it uh, it went on for 16 days the hijacking until they, they actually were allowed to take off and they landed in Tehran, and uh, it was all defused then. They, they were, they wanted some hostages to be released. Uh, that, that was what it was all about. So that was that was happening while we were doing the, uh, the, the pregnancy test to see if Alan was on his way or not. So tense, <laughs> tense times, both yeah. in the Middle East and in the Kahlberg yeah, yeah, household. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, very much so in the Middle East, because you had the, uh, the, the Iran-Iraq war had been raging for about eight years, and it was just coming to its its end they were about to start peace talks between uh, uh, Baghdad and Tehran then and uh, they'd, they'd been firing missiles at each other and doing kamikaze infantry charges and god knows what for for years thousands and thousands of, of, of uh, people dead on both sides the uh, Iran-Iraq war and uh, we actually Locally here, and I remember in Coventry and in, in Alvis, I think it was. It's about it, that's it, about fifteen miles away, isn't 15 it? Fifteen miles away, it built these massive uh, steel tubes, which were uh, were really long and screwed together. And it was uh, it was what they called the Iraqi super gun. Saddam Hussein had, had wanted a, a super gun, which was going to sort of lie up the, the side of a, a hill or a mountain, I think with the biggest gun the world's ever seen, so you could fire, fire massive projectiles at, at Iran. And that was being and, built uh, up the road? It was being built in Coventry, that was. <laughs> <laughs> People forget these things, but uh, yeah, I got it all, all in the diary, that was. The super gun. So the but, Coventry, uh, Coventry super gun yeah, intended for Iraq? For Iraq, to fire at Iran, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we've, we've had a, 
our fingers in uh, a, a lot of the uh, mischief that, that goes on in the in the Middle East and around the world. We have we certainly have. Really, they, you're talking about uh, Iraq. Iraq didn't really exist until uh, early in the last the last century when uh, a British uh, civil servant, it was a woman called Gertrude Bell. If uh, anyone wants to look that up, she uh, she drew up the boundaries of, of the modern uh, Middle East of Iraq and Iran, really, and uh, places like Mesopotamia and stuff like that all got swallowed up, and all the uh, different like the Marsh Arabs and the and the Sunnis and the the Shias and the, the Kurds all got lumped together, really, on Gertrude Bell's uh, boundaries. Because uh, a big part of the the, 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 the Kuwaiti hostage situation was that uh, Shiite Muslim prisoners were yeah, to be released, I yeah, believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, you know, you've got Iraq as well. I mean, we had a, what was called the, the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, who, who did the early exploration after the... Uh, the, the First World War, and uh, it was all all British instigated, and that they, they, that was later to become BP. And uh, we there was a fella called Musa Deg who was their prime minister who, who said, "Well, I haven't been exploited by these uh, Western companies, Western companies anymore," and he put an end to it. But uh, then, uh, of course, he, he got overthrown, and the, us and the Americans put their our the Shah of Iran in control then who was our man, <laughs> and it because uh, that didn't last long and they had the uh, the revolution, and and we brings us up to where we are now. You know, still in turmoil. But yeah, yeah. They, they had, we had the super gun, the super gun from uh, from Coventry. So there you <laughs> have it, guys. There's the a con there's like a forty year yeah. history of the Middle East there. Yeah. Uh, combined yeah. with yeah. the super gun. Yeah. made up the road in our yeah. very own Coventry. Yeah. Meanwhile, importantly, Mum and Dad were having an extension. <laughs> <laughs> Forget all that. We got, Forget super guns. Got, yes, yeah. We got, uh, <laughs> in April, we were, we were having walls knocked through and they were having a, a bit built on to the end of the garden to extend the lounge. And, of course, Crest Homes, as we said earlier on, were putting the footings in for all these new houses that were going to appear. And... Uh, Incidentally, while they did that, it didn't off uh, shake up the wildlife. Every night they'd have uh, rabbits and foxes and rats and good knows what fleeing from uh, from where this new building site was, which used to be far open farmland, of course. And they'd uh, be coming across the back of your grandma's back garden. I can remember the neighbors had a rabbit hutch and I can remember things getting in the rabbit hutch with the with the rabbits and things like that you know it was all sorts of wildlife flying about that reminds me of yeah. a there's a 90s cartoon called the animals of farthing wood yeah that was based on the same premise which was a animals fleeing a, a construction site oh it happens you see you see the wild it, the wild that was, it has to go somewhere doesn't it so it goes into the neighbouring gardens. <laughs> that was one of the most harrowing programmes I yeah. ever watched because yeah. there was there was a it was like Game of Thrones with with uh, woodland animals. Yeah. There was a death every every two episodes. Yeah. Right. Uh, I remember the name. <laughs> I remember the name. Yeah. After the extension, come uh, May time, we went to see Ry Cooder at the NEC, king of the uh, slide guitar and bottleneck guitar, who uh, also was in Captain Beefheart's uh, early bands as well. So somebody who I like to listen to, Captain Beefheart. Yeah, Google Google that one. <laughs> yeah, millennials. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> but anyway, Ry Cooder did a, a fantastic concert at the NAC, sold out. But I remember, which was quirky, a quirk of the time. I remember him uh, before he would perform. I remember him coming to the front of the stage and, and saying, uh, asking everybody to put their cigarettes out because uh, Ry Cooder. I perform better in a smoke-free environment. So all these people that got the, got the ciggies on all around the uh, NEC hurriedly stubbed them out. Otherwise, Rye refused to perform. <laughs> of course, you, you'll never do that anyway now, would you? Well, you, you, anyway. you say this, but I went yeah. to watch uh, Velvet Revolver, all right. which had the yeah. former Guns N' Roses guitarist uh, slash. slash. Oh wow! Top hat, yeah, yeah. everything. I even got a pick from um, yeah. Duff Keegan 
Oh, it was right. the bass player. I might have trod on someone's hand to get it. Excellent. Um, well, we're not excellent for that hand, but I get, get your point. Um, uh, he, uh, he, this is, well, Smoking Bang was, was in full swing. Oh, right. yeah. He nonchalantly did the coolest thing ever of putting a cigarette and smoking it off his, off his fretboard. Um, and, you know, technically he was breaking the law, but we'll let you slide because it's all about being cool, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that that year as well, talking about music, uh, Auntie Sheila and your mum and I, we went to see Pink Floyd at Wembley. I remember it really well. And Alan, I guess. Yes, yes, and that's why it's really, really memorable because you, your mum was heavily pregnant then. And uh, you could actually see Alan doing like somersaults and move because it was so loud and noisy and, and, and flashy lights and everything that it, it must he must have sensed it or felt it because he was doing there was elbows and knees and things pushing against your mum's tummy from the inside as if he was dancing and somersaulting inside and in utero <laughs> mosh pit while uh, <laughs> three of them were doing uh, one of these days or uh, you know the, the, the noisier songs that I did the uh, noisier parts of uh, Dark Side of the Moon, Alan was somersaulting. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the uh, the show, there was a, a mock-up of a, of a bedstead came flying from the back of the uh, Wembley, Wembley Stadium over everybody's heads and over the top of the, the drum kit, the drummer ducks, and crashes into the back of the stage with pyrotechnics and uh, fireworks flying off into the night sky inflatables and blow-ups and... Is this pre-Spinal Tap? Because it yeah, sounds yeah. very Spinal it, Tap. Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's not the first time I'd seen them. I'd seen them several times. I remember seeing them uh, when they were just previewing Dark Side of the Moon in 1974. And uh, they, they, even then they had uh, the thing fly back from the, the, the back of the arena. But it was an aeroplane then, not a bedstead. Not a flying, <laughs> but it was an actual... But anyway, Alan, Alan was very, very... In, uh, stirred to life even though he was uh, inside mom by the noise that was going on at the Pink Floyd concert. Well there were some nice trips that year we went went to the Beamish Museum in Durham which uh, with your, your granddad Charlie I remember he loved that because uh, you know there's memories for him for his youth really the style of houses and the, and the mock-up of the, the pit there and the public transport and the shops and everything, which he, he, he can remember as a lad, and he was giving us a, a guided tour, really. Because one, one of the things you mentioned <clears throat> once we'd completed the last podcast is we, we've actually talked about people whose uh, generationally have spanned several centuries. Yes. We've got people who reach <clears throat> in these diaries yes. who will be post-2000. Yeah, it's a good point, because Auntie Mary was on the scene still at the time, old, great Auntie Mary, and she was often in Addison, or we were often up there in South Shields, at her house, she would pick you up when you were when you were little and nurse you, because she'd she'd been childless herself, you know, so she she loved loved an opportunity to give you a cuddle, you know. So there was somebody, uh, you very much a, a person of the third millennium in the twenty first century, even though you were you were born in the last one. You were having physical contact then with uh, a lady who was born in the eighteen hundreds. Wow, the late, you know, in the late, uh, yeah, albeit eighteen ninety nine, I think she was born. So you were, you know, that, that that's something that you're just not going to encounter anymore uh, today, isn't it? You know, Fascinating. So, yeah, it is. Yeah. Tell, the diaries also tell them that I had a bit of a penchant for headbutting people at this point. Oh dear me! Yeah, in se several places in this diary, I I describe you being picked up by I think once by uh, your mum's auntie Reem. I always knew when you were going to do it because you'd swing right back and then you'd, you'd come forward at a rate of knots and you'd absolutely stick the nut on whoever it was who was holding. <laughs> and uh, you, poor poor woman, yeah, their auntie Reem nearly knocked her out. That doesn't sound yeah, like me. Yeah, yeah. And and to your nana, you did it poor poor little nana and she was, she was only a little slight woman, dear me. <laughs> so did I did yeah. I didn't headbutt someone from a different century? No, no, you didn't oh. do it to uh, old Auntie Mary, no. Opportunity no, missed. No. Yeah, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good trip uh, with my dad, uh, granddad Charlie, the Hippodrome, Birmingham, to see the legendary Irish comic 
Dave Allen. He was uh, he was noted for his uh, his uh, religious humour. Very controversially, he most of his jokes and his uh, his sketches and what have you revolved around uh, uh, religion, which is quite controversial. But he used to get away with it, Dave Allen. He was very very funny. And uh, I guess he was an Irish Catholic. Irish, but... yes, he was an Irish Catholic, lapsed Catholic, I think. And uh, he'd sit, he'd just sit on a stool, a glass of whiskey or something and a, and a cigarette and just chat these situations and ridiculous stories that uh, were a raconteur and uh, he, he was well known TV star as well because he, he used to have sketch shows on the TV and nearly every sketch was a uh, Involved priests and, uh, and and or nuns, something monks or something like that, you know. But uh, he, was, he was a very very funny funny fella, Dave Allen. Your, your granddad Charlie loved him. We took a trip to Gibraltar. That was one of my first travel experiences. We had a week in Fuengarola on the Costa del Sol. You, me, Mum, and Auntie Sheila flew out to Malaga, and then we got a, a bus from Malaga to Fuengarola, and we stayed in this. Nice apartment that I rented from a friend. Was this typical to do at the time? Was it? Was it? Because we go. We live in an age now where you can jet set off in Australia within twenty four hours, no problems. Was this typical? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the only untypical thing was that it was a, a friend who, who owned the apartment. You know, uh, rather than going with a holiday company, we had a we had a nice week there, on, right on the seafront in Fuengarola. We hired a car one day, and we and we had a day in Gibraltar. I can remember approaching Gibraltar. There's a the, the last rock. the rock, yeah, the last the last town in in Spain before you cross over the border into Gibraltar is a place called La Linea. There was these uh, they looked like uh, itinerants. There were there were you know a very dodgy looking bunch of uh, people with sticks and clubs actually, which was quite scary. Welcome. And they were, yeah, <laughs> and they were like directing traffic and they were telling us where to go and they wanted us to corral us into this. Uh, along this promenade to park up and uh, obviously take money off us and they were going to watch our cars, you know, and I, I remember thinking, oh, this doesn't look right, you know, I don't like the look of this whatsoever. And I was hesitating and this particularly mean-looking fella was sticking his face into me, me windscreen like saying, you pay, you go, you stay here, you pay me now, you know, and uh, I remember thinking, this is not right, and I just put my foot down and drove past him and, and carried on over the line and uh, across what turned out to be an airstrip. So you, you drive across the, the airfield and then you come to Gibraltar properly. It was another couple of miles really drive. A lot of these people were doing as they were told by these uh, these yobs <laughs> and having uh, to abandon their cars to them. It's like the old fashioned kind of watch your car mate. We didn't fall for it anyway. And uh, we carried on into Gibraltar properly, got parked in a proper car park in Gibraltar, so saved ourselves having to walk a couple of miles. We Once we're there, it's surreal. You're in a, an English town, you know, the high street with Marks and Spencers on it and uh, all the normal shops that, that you would see at home and uh, Bobby's on the beat and... Red phone boxes. Red phone boxes. I don't know if you'd see Bobby's on the beat now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you did there then. And... Uh, Old, you know, pubs with old English names, you know, like the Red Lion and things like that. Mind you, see that all over the Costa del Sol anyway. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we had a nice time. And we actually went up the rock then. Saw the uh, the famous uh, monkeys and... The Barbary uh, Apes. Yeah, Barbary Apes, yeah. And looked at the, the view. The, the view's fabulous. The harbour, and there's very busy shipping lanes there. Then we set off back then to uh, Fuengarola. After that, it was a, a nice day spent in Gibraltar. Of course, you... Your mum was expecting Alan, and uh, she was quite quite heavily pregnant. So she she bless her she she manfully walked all over the place when we were there. But we spent a lot of time uh, sunbathing as well, and uh, lazing in the in the back garden of these apartments that we were at. Actually, actually saw my first dead body. But we were there. The, we heard this massive metallic crash, and I went went a run around the front of the apartments to have a look, and it was the busiest road you've ever seen that was the one bad thing about that place there was a road uh, which ran hugged the coast and it was the main road all the traffic like a highway was on it. highway it was only two-way traffic but it was non-stop and, uh, and of course every now and then when there was a gap in the traffic somebody would try and overtake you know and uh, they, had, they had the most horrendous accidents and you took your life in your hands every time you went across this road Anyway, I heard this this crash, and I looked, and there were, sure enough, there was a, there'd been a head-on collision 
with uh, a couple of cars. One of them was definitely a tourist car, and you could see this 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 body hanging out of it. It was oh, it was it was awful. Uh, I'd never seen anybody uh, seen one up till then. So uh, yeah, that was, a, was an incredible experience. So there were two really significant disasters this year. One related to the Middle East and another one related to the Piper Alpha, which I don't know very much about, uh, which you might be able to explain a bit for us. But they're detailed within the, the diaries and they have they have great significance. Well, the Piper Alpha was uh, in, in July, July the 6th, came on the, the TV, was watching the news at night because it happened about 10 o'clock in the evening. It caught fire, terrible, terrible fire on board the uh, the rig. It was a North Sea oil rig and uh, 160 uh, people died. You know, they were, they were flinging themselves off the rig into the water and there's burning oil on the water. And I've had a dreadful, dreadful disaster. The Lockerbie uh, one was uh, in December, just around about Christmas time, that was. It's all tied in with the Middle East uh, problems. Libyans got the blame for it. Uh, a suitcase that was planted on board in, in Malta, I think, stopped over, you know, took off from London and then beginning its, its ascent ready to cross the Atlantic. To uh, Pan Am uh, jumbo jet and uh, it was about 31,000 feet and of course this bomb exploded in the hold and the, the whole plane just blew up with uh, 260 uh, people, well 260 people died in, in total uh, you know including those those on the ground and uh, in the skies above Lockerbie, so Lockerbie's uh, Lockerbie, yeah, landed on a residential area, you know, and killed killed people on on the ground as well. Dreadful, dreadful disaster that was. And uh, there was a there was a local couple actually on uh, the uh, the plane, you know, the, there's a, a young couple, a young girl from uh, Kingsbury and a fiance from Binley Woods in, in I think it's Coventry, and they were on the honeymoon, I think, at such a young age. They, they, they were among the victims. Very, very, very bad, that was. Yeah, talk, talking about Piper Alpha, uh, you know, a very serious incident that was. And uh, strangely enough, at 3M, the North Fan Room at 3M. Your factory, it's uh, a standard factory. Yeah, standard factory, but inside the North Fan Room is set apart from the rest of the plant. And it, it looks a bit like a rig uh, when you when you approach it from the the, the main part of the uh, maker and you walk across the walkway to it, and uh, inside it's got all these gas pipes and fan sets and burners and what have you. I can remember we couldn't get this uh, this burner to work. Uh, me and the, ele the electrician uh, Keith Jones, who I was on with on shift one night, we were having a heck of a lot of trouble with it. It was I had the idea. I said, well, if we disconnect this. This gas main, and I'm talking about a, a gas main, this pipe was a good two inch pipe, you know, big chunky one with full of bolt. And uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, at my behest, we undid this section of pipe, and then we set the burner up to, we got the gas turned off. Anyway, the automatic shutoff valve uh, ended up clicking open, and uh, this spark came on we didn't think there was a spark that was it any but there was this spark came on from the ignition and it ignited the gas from this uh <laughs> this pipe which is a good six or seven feet away and this massive flame shot out it must have been it must have been about 15 foot long this flame like a flamethrower across the uh across the aisle and uh i leapt like uh, like Batman <laughs> at this big uh, valve and I swung on this valve because it was like a lever valve to shut it off and in, in my haste I swung I, I hung on it the wrong way at first so I was like trying to open it up even more anyway uh, pyromania anyway, yeah and so when I gathered me thought I shut it the other way and this flame stopped and uh, I can remember Keith Jones who I was on with he was, I, I thought god I've never been so frightened in my life and he was uh, on the floor rolling around, killing himself laughing. <laughs> I says, what are you doing? I said, it was really dangerous, that, you know, and he thought it was hilarious. Evokes <laughs> Piper Alpha. So I got this, uh, yeah, and it was, from then on, Keith and I always said, can you remember the Piper Alpha episode in the North Fan Room? <laughs> <laughs> and we'd have a good laugh. <laughs>
that brings us to the end of the year and of course what happened at the end of the year was a, a real happy thing for us when your young brother was born Alan came along in December things would never be the same again after that <laughs> no quite yeah I was so much the golden boy oh <laughs> and a new kid on the block both been uh, all right just all right. That being done with faint praise. That is being done with faint praise. <laughs> and on, on that bombshell, I think that's where we shall leave it to be continued. We're not done, are we, Dad? We've, we've, that's, that's two years down. We've still got... Scratch the surface. The rest of the 80s, all the 90s and the noughties and the teenies to go. The millennium bug, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. And whatever was going on with our lot at that point. Oh, yeah. Uh, Newcastle we... being relegated. <laughs> Which one? Again. <laughs> yeah. This year. We actually beat Liverpool at Anfield towards the end of this year, which is in the diary in big letters. Mirandina, our Brazilian, the first Brazilian, I think he was, to play in the Premier League, uh, scored both goals at the cop end, which is about the only thing we had to sing about that year, beating Liverpool. <laughs> so, if like us, you are nostalgic Newcastle United fans, uh, or you want to hear more football hijack this podcast then subscribe like what we've got in terms of content and comments and things like that we are uh, accessible and contactable on social media at half life of brian on facebook twitter and instagram as well you can check out the 1987 prequel to this podcast i think it's been a decent second effort oh yes uh, and that hopefully You'll stick around to see what happens with the new arrival, Alan, as well as our family and all history, both local, global, critical and trivial, yeah. on the Half-Life of Brian podcast. To be fair to Alan, he's only just scraped in at the end of this one, hasn't he? He's, he's, uh, he hasn't uh, had time to stamp his, uh, his mark on anything yet. Yeah, <laughs> you know, a bit of... A bit of moshing in utero at a Pink Floyd concert is, hasn't, hasn't stamped much yet so no, not yet. he's got more to give I feel so on that note we'll leave it there 1988 let's leave it with a die hard yippee ki so yippee ki everybody yippee ki everybody <laughs> bye for now oh. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing there